Welcome to the Green Majority Podcast. Unfortunately, back on the poor mic this week, but we do what we can. If you would like to help support the program and do things like help me get a more reliable microphone, you can uh, become our patron at greenmajority.ca and click on the How You Can Help button, or you can also just go directly to Patreon, which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash greenmajority. Sign up for as little as a dollar a month and become a direct Green Majority member. Helps very much with the production of the show, us getting equipment, and having the time to actually produce it. Very appreciated and welcome if you can. Other than that, please enjoy the show. Welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT, 89.5 FM. <clears throat> I'm your host, uh, Darren Kaster, back uh, after being off last week. So very sad, Stefan. I'm oh. really sorry. You guys did a great job without me, oh, by the thank way. Thank you. Um, I enjoyed it very much. My mom also really enjoyed it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, uh, my main audience target is your mother. <laughs> <laughs> I, everything I do on the show is for your mother. And I yours. Ah, well... Where's that well then? We're also in studio uh, with joining us uh, sporadically throughout the show and then also running the bonus show as well is uh, Sabina uh, Hiseni. I got it today. Oh, I'm getting thumbs up. <laughs> Love it. She'll be uh, perhaps jumping in throughout the show uh, and as well. Unfortunately, we're sans both Brenna and Emmy this week, but I believe we're getting them both back next week. So We can only hope. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> There's only so much of either Stefan or I anyone can handle. Although I, uh, the, well, someone else has to look a week off. Yeah, me. true. And someone else has to look out for the rest of our audience. That's right. <laughs> the, the two of us are only going for each other's mothers. The rest of our audience needs to be understood. That's absolutely yes. So um, what we're going to be doing today is um, uh, aside from keeping it a little bit light because uh, unfortunately I'm still in recovery mode a little bit. Um, so today is uh, part one of my three part uh, series. Um, which will be today we'll be talking a little bit about the limits of democracy. Next week we'll be talking a little bit, uh, hopefully next week we'll be talking a little bit about the limits of capitalism. And then part three is the So What Smart Guy episode is what I've (laughs) titled it, which is that whenever you or anyone or generally me in conversation start criticizing these things, people start rolling their eyes and going, yeah, okay, but, you know, what what would you do about it? You know, how do you solve these problems? No one else has figured it out. Well, I have a couple ideas. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. So today, uh, that will be it. Unfortunately, as I said, I've been uh, still rather under the weather. I've been uh, uh, sleeping a lot in uh, recovery mode. So I'm, I'm, I do apologize in advance. I'm not as well prepared for my presentation today as I'd hoped to be. However, I think we'll still be able to have a very interesting discussion about that. So uh, part two of the show, the middle section of the show today, I'll be giving a short presentation supported by Stefan uh, about what my thoughts are about uh, what is democracy and what are some of the limitations of it? Where are some of the problem areas uh, with the at least the current type of democracies that we're using, not the overall concept of uh, people having a say, uh, an equal say, but in, in application, in practice, what are some of the problems and, and limitations with the way that we go about this and, and the societal problems that, that are an artifact of these uh, issues? Uh, and then in the final section, everybody will be jumping in uh, today, as well as Deirdre, who's recently uh, jumped back into uh, from us. She sort of joined us and then had to run away for a little while. So she's back uh, as well and will be jumping us as well. And then in the bonus show, uh, we'll be talking about some more of this stuff as well. So that is the plan for today's show. Uh, we're going to do some news 
news first, though, so I'm going to run through a few of the headlines that caught my attention. Uh, there is, it is just simply not possible today to get to all of the things that I have deemed important, uh, which is pretty much the story every week, but I think especially this week, there's a lot of stuff. Um, so basically, I'm just going to run through a few things, which I encourage you to check the website for. Uh, everything I'm mentioning now and uh, throughout the show will be listed on the website. So uh, if any of this grabs your attention, I do encourage you to check it out. So I'm just going to run through that, and then I'm going to throw to uh, to Stefan, who's going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me again, uh, run through a couple of the ones that we thought were uh, most uh, urgent to actually discuss on this week's program. So a few of the things that caught my, as far as breaking news, the Vancouver Observer is reporting that as of, I uh, believe the story came out at 7 a.m. this morning, uh, <clears throat> that BC Hydro was going to court to evict some Site C dam protesters uh, from outside its office in Vancouver. Uh, there's an excellent piece talking about the uh, the resistance from Canadian universities, unlike global universities, to uh, get out of the oil business, as well as far as their investments. Uh, a lot of resistance from Canadian universities, uh, and there's an excellent article on why that might be. Uh, so we encourage people to check that out. Also, and, and I'm, I, in fact, I'm going to make a point of coming back to this when I have actually more information. And this was very last minute to come across my desk, and, and I'm just not, I'm, I'm not familiar with it enough to get into it today, but we're going to come back to it, which is the Ontario Microfit Program uh, is suspended uh, due to application irregularities. A couple of the quick ones before we throw to Stefan as well. As the ongoing um, uh, Exxon New campaign, there's more and more information continues to come out. Uh, Imperial Oil and, and other oil companies, nobody is surprised, also being implicated. Uh, as knowing about the reality of climate change for quite some time and spending millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars a year to uh, lie to the public. I, I don't think mm -hmm. that, I don't think there's a, a more fair or less harsh way to put it and be accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, deceive actively, intentionally deceive the public to prop up their business model, despite all scientific evidence to the contrary. Uh, and my question on that uh, would be: So why should we believe them now? And uh, this is a point of view of which uh, apparently Justin Trudeau and the Liberals do not share. Uh, but uh, we'll come back to that maybe mm -hmm. in a little bit. Uh, there's also a uh, very interesting article going around about the um, widening range of disease-carrying mosquitoes as a consequence of climate change. Uh, we haven't talked about it much on the program, but I'm going to actually probably lean on uh, Sabina in a future episode to uh, look in a little bit into the Zika virus thing, because we're learning more and more about that. I saw on a news ticker actually standing in line somewhere last week that uh, Canada has experienced its first sexually transmitted, confirmed sexually transmitted case of Zika virus. Um, so this is very much flying under the radar and the fact that you'll see it in the news, but I, I don't see people talking about it a lot socially. I don't see it a lot on social media. It doesn't really seem to have gotten people's attention, uh, but this Zika virus issue is incredibly serious, uh, and we're going to be discovering that more and more, and it is going to continue to be exacerbated by the uh, impacts of climate change. So look uh, forward to more, well, look forward maybe is the wrong phrasing, uh, but uh, stay tuned perhaps uh, for more information about that. Uh, and uh, as well, uh, a very interesting report showing, uh, well, the title is, and, and I would concur with it, that uh, natural gas is increasingly becoming an unnecessary bridge to nowhere. And, and Stefan may have an additional comment about that, because I know you mentioned last week about, uh, or, or actually it may have been Spina, somebody mentioned last week uh, about um, about how this is increasingly being seen on social media of, okay, fine, oil's terrible, let's, yay, natural gas, it's the environment climate mm -hmm. change solution. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, we'll come back to that uh, as well. 
Uh, and let's see, there's one more I really wanted to get to. Oh, and of course, um, Great Barrier Reef tourism operators, operators are refusing media and politicians access to the bleached reefs. Um, absolutely catastrophic loss of coral reefs, not just uh, because they're beautiful, but these uh, supply uh, incredibly important habitat to a, a massive amount of sea life, uh, contributing wildly to the absolutely mind-bending uh, amount of extinction and population reduction in ocean life. And... Uh, you know, the Great Barrier Reef tourism operators want to get people to still come and fly down there and experience their weekend packages with all-inclusive five-star hotels. Uh, so instead, let's pretend that we're not in the middle of nuking that resource. Mm. Uh, that's what really caught my attention this week. There's about a dozen more, including uh, the sorry, the last one here I have to mention, IMF forecasting Middle East oil exporters are going to miss out on $500 billion this year due to oil uh, changes, changes in the oil market, uh, which I'm not going to cry about. Uh, as well, but it also does have some implications for Canada. All that and more. There's about a dozen more stories here. I will not simply read the titles. I think that gives you a good overview of some of the really important stuff happening right now. So uh, beyond my uh, uh, synopsis of some of the uh, news items, Stefan is going to get into some more detail. Stefan. Yeah, so uh, I've got three lined up. Uh, One was not mentioned by you. uh, One was sort of and one directly was. I'll start with the one that was directly you just mentioned, which is uh, the Great Barrier Reef, uh, because it's – I want to dive that into a little bit more because there's a couple interesting factors within this in in play here. Uh, So the the actual numbers that 93 (coughs) – 93% – of uh, of the Queenland of Queensland's coral reefs have been bleached, uh, and it should be noted that this is actually sort of a it, this is something that rises and falls. The it's bleaching isn't just something that like just started happening and now is destroying everything. It's a it's like a it's part of the natural processes. Uh, but this is a much much higher percentage ever, and a lot of the things that is normally done to protect them from getting worse are not being done. Uh, so actually, so uh, people were predicting that it would get start getting this bad a couple of years ago. Uh, they were working on some sort of way to. Uh, some sort of way to actually protect the space, uh, and and they had actually begun to implement something. And until the new government, the Australian government, came in and got rid of it and, and, and reopened the waters, basically to to tourism and all these other sort of things, uh, which then only further drive this bleaching crisis forward. Uh, it of course also has to do with sort of the, the different con- the consistent acidification of of ocean water in general uh, from from climate change. Uh, but but really, what this has to do with is 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 that is the Australian government basically refusing to put aside this land and protect it so it can recover. They're, they're sort of being like, no, we must get, you know, it's, where, does that sound like anyone else? Does that, does any other government sort of sound like, sound familiar here? Maybe uh, they should be building a wall. Yes, exactly. Um, out of coral. <laughs> and make the coral pay for it. Make the coral pay for it. Um, well, I guess they are. It's 93% <laughs> bleached. Uh, but yeah, so this really has to do with the, the uh, what the big takeaway here is just understanding that, uh, what humans are doing to our planet so consistently is just overtaxing a resource and refusing to let it come back. You know, it, it's it's so much often the conversation isn't whether or not we get any of it or none of it. It's actually using it in a sustainable manner. And, and consistently, we're making the decision to not do that. Uh, and this is just yet another example. And the, and, and the real concern here, of course, is that as, as, as I feel like I'm saying with every different issue, if we hit a tipping point, it might never come back, uh, which sounds like every other issue we talk about. Uh, and, and when people say, well, I don't believe that ever happens, look at what happened to fish stocks in, in the East Coast. Uh, and then everyone asks if that's the only time it's happened. Then you go, well, look at Easter Islands. Well, that's the only time. It's, these are consistently when, 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 the wor- when the Earth gives you this sort of indication that, like, no, stuff's getting bad. Um, it's... it's uh, 
It's kind of like the 97th time you've heard a police chief say that the uh, the racism in their department is a few bad apples. Right. Yeah. It's at some point you have to understand. There's 100 so. officers and there's 97 <laughs> bad apples, apparently. Um, but th- so this is the thing, right? It, it, it comes down to actually appreciating that 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 we're in a living ecosystem and and taking too much of something will make it collapse. Uh, and so we have to actually treat it that way. Well, the, the thing on that, Stephen, that really, really, uh, I guess, frustrates me is that it's the same folks that will tell us not to worry about this and that this is not a real problem or brush it aside is the same people that love to be like really be condescending about economics. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this seems to me to be pretty like grade three economics. You have an allowance. Mm-hmm. It's three dollars. And if you spent it all on comic books, then you don't get to have soda pop. Yeah, right. And I really don't see how it's that much more complicated. Hey, we have a certain amount of resources. You can take out a you can take out more resources, but then you won't have it next week. And these same folks that are you know in charge of you know business leaders and the smartest and hardworking people, apparently to them, uh, according to them, are the same folks that you know spend all their money, their allowance this week, and then complain that they don't get soda pop next week, mm-hmm. and and throw a temper tantrum. It's so absolutely childish, uh, combined with the most mind bending arrogance. Uh, is I think really what gets under my skin, right? Um, and and I think what's well, this will be since this will be a theme, I'll I'll, I'll mention it before we move on uh, to another another story. Uh, but what what this ninety what this story particular that we referenced is all about actually is is how much we're trying to hide that it's a problem. Again, the, this, the once again it seems that the solution to the problem isn't to actually try to solve the problem, but to, to deny the, to the public that it exists. Uh, and so, and, and so, they, in this Guardian article, uh, Tony Fontes, uh, it's a dive operator, and he's and he's quoted as saying, not only that this is the worst uh, bleaching event in the reef's history, uh, but this is the first, it was the latest of string of operators denying media requests to help them obtain pictures uh, to actually show this to the world. Like they're now people whose job it is to like you know their 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 entire lives are about showing people these beautiful earth, uh, this beautiful part of the earth. And and now and it's now being bleached, and they're like this is terrible. But the, but they're now being denied the ability to actually show it to the world. And so this 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 reaction to to oh, oh, the government failure of protecting of protecting this important resource isn't to try to solve that; it's to deny and to hide that it's happening. To uh, continue shows- my condescending metaphor, <laughs> it might, it's almost like a, a a child is in their dirty room with their mother and their, and saying, "You can't go outside until you finish your homework and clean your room." And the kid in front of his messy toy says, "But I already cleaned my room." Right. Yeah. Like it's, or or even just to, to give more Canadian example, it's it's you know it's the idea that pipelines are needed to 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 fuel the energy transition. It's it's you know or, or the fact that you know or the fact that it takes it's in, almost impossible to go take photos of of of, of tar sands operations. Uh, you know, the, the, there's an intentional. High, Potential act on the government to be like, no, this isn't a problem because you can't see it, rather than actually dealing with the problem. And what, what, what really wonders me is that when are Canadians in general, and I understand our audience is an exception to this, but when your average Canadian is really going to go like, d- realize like how stupid apparently some of these politicians think that the average voter is. And in some cases, maybe they're right because it's been successful. Uh, but how many times can someone say, no, 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 this is the right thing to do, but don't check mm-hmm. before someone goes, nah. <laughs> This doesn't seem right to me. I don't yeah. know. Sabina, go ahead. And so what, what's really interesting to me is that all of these um, issues that we're seeing, such as ocean acidification, coral bleaching, biodiversity loss, it's all part of the problem that is climate change. And we've kind of moved away from the fact that climate like from climate deniers, at least in the organi- high organizational levels, but people are denying the causes of climate change and the side effects of climate change. So are you really 
still not a climate denier if you're denying that all of these causes come from climate change like what I mean, what it's uh, it's the six year old instead of saying my room doesn't need to be cleaned going fine. okay, but I already cleaned it. (laughs) Well, yeah, we've switched the way we've (laughs) climate denial has changed. It's changed from it's not a problem to. Yeah, but we're doing something about it. Uh, even if you're not right, it's, it's and I think it's something that we'll come back to many, many times. Is that shifting we're seeing of, of the way denial works? Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to move on very quickly, and then I'm going to because I really want to get to the third article. Uh, the second one is just about uh, this from you know it's from EcoWatch, and so to some extent. Uh, this should be understood as probably a very hopeful statement mm. uh, from EcoWatch, which is the beginning of the end of the old oil order. Uh, in part, I props EcoWatch on the alliteration. That's uh, I love I love myself a good alliteration. So old oil order is uh, while a mouthful, still fun. Um, but the but the, the interesting part of the article, which I think actually does speak to a larger interesting trend, and, and something that I think that what we really might see is that uh, the leaders of OPEC countries and non-OPEC countries uh, met uh, earlier this year with the hope of basically uh, getting prices of oil back up. Uh, which, 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 first of all, we should understand is basically just collusion. Yeah. Uh, like it, we create monopolies. We, we just we, we the point of capitalism is to get rid of monopolies so people can't do exactly what this goal was. And we'll come back like, to that on on my <laughs> limits of democracy or my limits yeah. of capitalism. Uh, like <laughs> quite literally, the goal of uh, of breaking up monopolies is so that you can't arbitrarily shut down part of a resource or, or reduce production to then increase price and make everyone more money. That is fundamentally uh, one of the major goals of uh, – one of the major requirements for capitalism to really work. Uh, so I guess some good news for capitalism uh, and – but bad news for oil companies uh, that didn't work. Uh, the OPEC countries and non-OPEC countries couldn't come to an agreement. There was actually quite a riff, uh, which, which to some extent seems to be – uh, seems to very much likely uh, encourage that they won't actually be able to come together for quite some time. There's n- really, they're not fans of each other at this moment, uh, which will also perpetuate the low oil prices that we've seen. You know, a causing the you know it's causing this it's causing all the problems we're seeing in Newfoundland because they were becoming quite an oil based economy. We've seen it's causing problems in Alberta. Uh, it's causing all of these problems all around the, all around the world. And to some extent, as we're now seeing this shift away from oil in many in many in some in some sp- important ways, it might mean that we'll never actually see an increase. Uh, Again, uh, which is partially why we don't need pipelines because it's never going to make sense to run an Albertan oil uh, patch again. Um, but anyways, let's move. Let, let you know if it, like I've said this before. I'll say it one more time before I move on. Uh, but if we're tr- expecting to make a hundred of costs a hundred dollars a barrel oil for Alberta to make money, and we're sitting at twenty five to thirty, uh, it's just math and not the environment that you need to worry about. Um, and, and and the fact that if you're building a pipeline, you need to expect to use it for forty years. Yeah. If you're going to actually get your cost back, the the pricing they use to show you those numbers only work if you use the pipeline for its full life. If you use it for 10 years, the actual equation doesn't work either. So it's all a bunch of nonsense with math. It's it's people knowing that it's not true saying it to you anyway. I call that a lie. Hmm. Yeah. So anyways, so this is so yeah. So we're looking at the. Uh, uh, so that's. That's an interesting thing to keep your eye on. I, I like you know, the longer people often think that the longer the oil prices stay low, that's actually less likely to get fuel economy uh, other things like that. But I think it actually might, <laughs> given our political co- climate, provide an opportunity to actually bring in uh, car- effective carbon pricing uh, to not uh, to not in a, in, a, in a way and actually probably continue to shift ourselves off oil. 
Uh, moving on to the last one, which is sort of most thematically tied perhaps to the second half. Uh, this is not on the list, but I wanted to mention it largely because I wanted to give somewhat of a pushback to the way it's often being reported in some mainstream outlets and then some props to The Intercept uh, run by Glenn Greenwald uh, because it's also one of those things that if I didn't follow Glenn Greenwald on Twitter, I would know almost nothing about this. Uh, but because I do, I've just like consistently read a couple articles every time he's posted it and, I've, and it's, 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 it's an interesting insight to what can happen uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a democracy uh, with, 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 which, has, which has difficulties. Uh, and it's about Brazil. So if you if you don't know about Brazil, uh, there's a one one uh, short paragraph uh, from the New York Times Brazil bureau chief uh, Simon Romero, uh, which sort of conveys exactly how dire uh, the situation in Brazil is. Which is that Brazil is suffering from its worst economic crisis in decades. An enormous graft scheme has hobbled the national oil company. The Zika epidemic is causing despair across the Northeast. And just before the world heads to Brazil for the Summer Olympics, the government is fighting for survival with almost every corner. Of the uh, of the political system under the cloud of scandal, uh, and to, to not to, to, to somewhat uh, exemplify how dire this really is, there's something like it w- there was a they're currently trying now to so the, the the current party that's in that's in place is a is a somewhat leftist uh, party uh, run by a, a woman named Dilma. And there's a much there's a whole history to this, but their and their party is relatively is 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 quite corrupt and has some, some corrupt issues. But so does almost everyone else who's trying to oust this the 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 the, the, the government. And and what's 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 remarkable is they recently hosted a. Um, they recently hosted – there was an impeachment process uh, for the president uh, who was only elected a year ago or a little over a year ago. And something like 300 – and it was on corruption charges, even though she herself is one of the very few political people to not actually be charged with corruption. It seems a lot of corruption below her, but she herself remains relatively outside of that. But the, the idea – the charge is that she's still running a corrupt government and therefore uh, she'd be arrested. But – uh, something like I think of a five or f- approximately five hundred team Congress, um, over three hundred of them were currently in under investigation for scandal, or for for, for corruption. Uh, so this is corruption is rife throughout the entire government, uh, and on all on all sides. And in fact, the vice president who will take who will take control of Brazil uh, if Dilma is ousted is uh, is himself under charges for corruption. Mm. Uh, and so the the um, the widespread difficulty that they're having is 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 remarkable. But what I what, what I want to focus on is really what uh, is the is 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 the power that the media is having, uh, because the media there is almost entirely run uh, run by run by the rich elite. Uh, and so the and so the example and, and to the extent which is you know the uh, and and what's interesting is that the. Other media outlets from here in the Western media are also picking up from what they're saying, and then and then trumpeting basically with the way that their media is is protesting it or releasing it. So, for example, uh, Ian Bremmer post tweeted a picture of one of the protests on the President Bureau with the idea of the people versus the president, which was then retweeted by Chuck Todd. Two different Western media outlets, uh, when in reality, uh, you know, the people in those protests weren't in were the middle class and up it'd be sort of as if you'd be sort of as if uh as if the beaches had a protest against 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 trudeau um i'm sorry people on the beaches but you're you're upper class it's a lovely neighborhood but you're upper class um and and people act as if that was representative of the entire of the entire of the entire nation because especially because her her the party that she that she runs is is actually really in charge is has a big point to um is is mostly uh you know unions and in in the more in the poor nations of the people 
So and implemented a strong social safety net. There was already a strong one, and 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 she made it stronger. Well, yeah, they've been working for the last. Uh, yeah, so it's it's it, she on the back of another very popular uh, leftist. But the point I want to get to really is that what's interesting is about how this is working with the media uh, is that almost all of the media is owned by by the the rich elite. And so the media now is acting acting as a uh, really as a as as a as a advertisement system for uh, for this sort of uh, for these for these protests. Uh, you know, the, the Intercept goes as far as calling them de facto protest organizers. And their explanation is basically, uh, if you remember how much Fox News played a role in promoting and encouraging the Tea Party rallies, mm. just picture if that if instead of just being Fox News, it was also all of the other major newspapers, like the news, if every single news station was playing the same sort of stuff about how you had to come to these rallies and stuff like that. Like that's the level of control of media that, that exists within mm. within within in the country. We had, an, we had an example, really quickly, we had an example of that in Canada where 158 out of 164 newspapers in Canada right before the election printed something saying, you know, you basically you're flushing Canada down the toilet if you don't vote conservatives. Um, and people were really shocked by that. And I, I think people have easily forgotten it. But imagine that was every front page every day. That's right. the situation we're talking well, about. Well, none of that, but that points in some of that to the same, the problem we have here in Canada is to say that we're not, you know, this, that we're not any better. Um, what percentage of our newspapers are owned by Post Media? It's a massive it's, percentage. It's in. It's, it's above ninety. It's, a, it's in the ninety ninety mid nineties. Yeah, it's a massive massive Something percentage. Like and that, so yeah. and so like this is the like this is the problem with the with with with, with when when media are owned by by, by a central problem. So um, that is all to say basically uh, don't necessarily believe everything you're reading from say uh, from some Western news sources. Check out some some check out the Intercept for sort of an other angle on on, on what's going on in Brazil. Uh, we'll see. We'll sort of keep following this as as far as a as far as those you know as far as a limits to democracy sort of conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's an example of sort of the difficulty you can have when without free press, which is important, and here on community radio. <laughs> so that that does play very well into my first uh, point of my next section. But of course, we're going to take a brief segue uh, for that. So Ed is in the studio. Uh, Ed, please uh, let us know what our music break is going to be. Hey, um, so I wanted to also mention um, over the summer I met someone from Brazil during like the Pan Am Games. Um, and she described to me a lot of, of what, you know, you guys were just talking about, like very rampant poverty, a lot of crime and corruption. I was, I was very shocked about what she said. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really bad situation there. Um, so the music break we got is, uh, Bad Apple by David Wilcox. Apple on the tree. All right. And there we are. We're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Darren Kaster, and uh, we are broadcasting live here at CIUT as well through a number of community and radio partners all the way across the country and internationally as well. We have some stations in the U.S., uh, you could be listening on podcast, from which I uh, frequently check the statistics, and we have listeners all the way around the world. We've uh, I've had pings from Brazil, uh, mm. Iran, um, uh, from New Zealand, all over the place. We have some listeners in the UK who email us occasionally, so uh, greetings to you as well. And also rabble.ca, which has been a very, very uh, kind partner to us as well in helping uh, get some word out about the show, and we're very grateful for that as well. So I'm going to um, do now just a sort of a, a brief monologue, if you will. Stefan, uh, I've asked if he can think of uh, uh, and some examples of what I'm talking about may cut in as well at, at any point, but really what we're doing today, and I, I mentioned that I wanted to do this show to a few people, and, and they 
gave me a lot of good suggestions and we had some suggestions for guests we should have in and whatnot. So if there's a lot of interest in this topic, um, people, listeners have been really great recently. Um, I don't know if we started doing something differently or, or, or what, but all of a sudden we started getting a lot of listener email and I'm really thrilled. I love hearing from people, even if it's just to keep up the good work or, hey, you guys screwed this stuff up, anything at all. Stefan, uh, I just want to give a quick shout out, actually. Mm. Uh, specific, uh, because you know we threw our we threw our 500 episode party last last Friday. Yes, uh, and you know who really showed up to that party? The vegans. <laughs> yes, they represented. Well done. I just want to give a shout out to all vegans everywhere because despite despite I'll say our differences and our similarities, uh, yeah. it's the vegans who really showed up to that party. I want to thank all vegans just for that fact. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Seconded. And I got a number of nice notes uh, wishing that I'd been there as well and, and missing me too. So uh, good, big shout out to our friends uh, in that community as well. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, so what I was sort of saying was that like, if, if this is a particular uh, area of interest, please let us know and I'd be happy to come back. Uh, I was given a, a really great list of suggestions of guests that we could have on on this, some of these topics. Uh, but listeners, I would be happy to continue uh, going through this topic. But today, and for the, and for the sake of the sort of three-part little mini-series that we're doing, uh, I really just wanted to do a sort of very, very fundamentals rethink. Because I think a lot of the time we sort of start midway through on this because it's a very big topic. Uh, and I think some of the issues that I think need to be examined get skipped because they're at a much more basic level. So I'm just doing a very brief and basic uh, sort of fundamental really down-in-the-roots overview of some of these ideas. So this section I decided to call the Limits of democracy for a few reasons. Um, and so I think the best way to start is by sort of defining in my own terms. And I understand if you go and, and Google this, you may find a different definition. Um, you may have a different personal opinion on this. You may have also done a master's degree in, in political science or something and have a and think that my definition is is entirely inerrant. Uh, feel free to let us know. But for the purposes of today, we're going to work with my definition. So my definition uh, of a democracy as it applies to a modern society is uh, it starts with the idea that uh, we're not it's a rejection of a former idea in a sense that you know one person is in charge and and that they're appointed by some deity and that that you know their power is unquestionable and we just live by their rules and at their good grace Um, this idea was essentially uh, uh, eventually and very bloodily overthrown with the idea that uh, some basic concept although you know some people's ideas of who everybody is uh, will vary from person to person, but the idea that everybody has certain inherent rights and certain values, and then along with this should come some idea that they should have some sort of say in the society that they live in, and I, an idea that I think is is a, is a very positive one and, and, a, and a change I approve of wholeheartedly. Um, but it comes with an inherent problem. So uh, we have a democracy as a system by which people try to come to an agreement about a course of action as it applies to a societal level. So it about societal health, how we should operate, how we should interact. What's the best way to get along for all of our mutual benefits? Um, but of course, even if, even at this very most basic idea, this this idea of, uh, of a consensus has some problems. For instance, um, one of the most basic ones is that what happens when a majority of a population decides that they don't like a, sub, a minority of the population having certain rights, for instance. Um, so we could very easily reference a lot of the, uh, the LGBT uh, bathroom laws that are going on in the US right now. Well, that's democracy, right? 61% or 89% or even 99% of people decide that 1%, 10%, 15%, or 49% of people shouldn't have rights and screw them. Um, is that democracy? Well, technically it is. Um, but we've decided that that's not the sort of democracy that we want to have. So what we've done in our modern democracies is that we've decided to balance the interests of the majority of people 
and and integrate some general rules that are not easily changed or overthrown to help balance this out and protect the rights of the minority because uh, the whims of a majority in the moment should not override this general idea that everybody, that basic principle that everybody has inherent rights and values. So the way that we've decided to do this is to bring in a required arbiter in some form, and this takes a, a, a in, in a basic sense a two part. Uh, uh, configuration. One of them is is some form of a constitution or founding document that outlines some rules that are either basically intended to be unchangeable or, or nearly impossible to change, very, 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 very difficult to change, uh, and a some form of a government, uh, a, a, a administration class, if you will, uh, that helps to execute this because generally you can't outline every scenario. So you have to get into a system of courts and regulations and governments and policies and legislation to work out the fine details of how this works out on a large scale. We're just simply just, it's just too big uh, to write everything out and societies change, right? For instance, we used to be very acceptable to disparage uh, people who were interested in uh, uh, marrying some of a different quote unquote race. Now we consider it inconceivable that that would be a right not forgiven from you, but it's now for many of those same folks that would find that inconceivable still find it very conceivable to take away rights from LGBT uh, BT people, for instance. So these, there's a constant state, and this is sort of what, what makes running a democracy so very difficult, is that values change. And I would say evolve and generally evolve in the right direction. But values change, which is why we can't have a sort of Ten Commandments style uh, form of running society. We need to have a flexible and fluid system that adapts and learns and changes and improves over time. Uh, so this is a great thing because it allows us to improve our standards and improve this, our society over time, but it also comes with some inherent problems. So th th I'm just going to go through some. There's basically four main problems. If anyone can think of some different ones that I'm not covering today, I would really like to hear about it. Uh, and of course, I've also invited Stefan to jump in with any examples uh, he thinks that I've missed. Um, but the first one I'd like to identify is what I've called the problem of an informed public. So when we're talking about uh, running a society, we ask people to make decisions about how society should be run. The problem with that is that not everybody is very well informed. Uh, even before we get into things like corruption or any of these other things or, or actively trying to, um, to, to think, the next problem down is actually active deception. So we're, we're just talking about, we're not talking about people lying or trying to deceive people or trick people. We're just talking about just the ability of people to know. We don't, none of us can know everything about everything and very few of us know very much about very much compared to the total number of things, right? So being well informed, quote unquote, is actually a nearly impossible task. Um, so what we've attempted to do in our society is we have certain people that have certain expertises. This is why scientists go and specialize, right? You're not, there's not a single science degree is because it, it's impractical to do that. It is not possible as Sabine, I'm sure will attest, um, to be in any way fluent in all areas of science. It's, it's virtually impossible to even be a, a full expert in your specialization, even after 10 years of schooling and 20 years of expertise. Lawrence Krauss, one of my favorite scientists uh, of all times and, and wonderful public speaker is the first to admit that he is incredibly ignorant about a ton of science. Um, he's very well informed on the theory of science, and that's what makes him a good speaker. But he's very, very ignorant about the vast majority of science. So even when we have quote unquote experts that aren't perfect, and you have an average population that is that is relative to those experts, shamefully uninformed, upon which upon which do we make uh, decisions? If you have people that don't know what they're talking about, how many how often is asking them what they think what we should do about something useful? Uh, this creates a very serious problem. This creates a very serious problem when it comes to obvious things, which I'm sure you expected, like climate change. When you say, well, what should we do about climate change? And a bunch of people say nothing. Uh, most, uh, many of them because like, hey, well, 
I'm, I'm incentivized to not believe this is a real problem because I'm making an awful lot of money off the thing that's causing the problem. And some other folks that just find it inconceivable that we could have this type of effect, ignorant of the fact that we can demonstrate that we do, and it's simply factual that this is the case. Uh, but it's also applies in a number of other areas. For instance, you know, should we uh, spend money on roads? Should we spend money on public transit? Basically, any question you can possibly think of is incredibly complex and has many things. We talked a lot in the vegan episode about uh, nuance and how even how you phrase a question matters. And these can become very complicated very quickly. And so when you're doing things, even if we were to ask the public as a general and say we have a, a what's that called? When the, a referendum uh, on every possible question, which is, of course, unfeasible. Um, even if we were to do that, which uh, you know someone might call a perfect democracy where we actually, we don't need arbiters, we don't need representatives, we actually ask the public something that's conceivable now in the age of the internet, uh, we would still have a pretty shoddily run society by the simple fact of the people that most people have no idea what they're freaking talking about on most topics. It's just, it's just true. And that includes everyone here in this room. Um, so that's a problem. So we have an uninformed media now, which is taken as a, uh, a middle person, as Stefan was just outlining with the media, as a middle person who, well, I can't be informed, so I'll, I'll read the newspaper. Well, uh, there's a number of problems with the media as well. First of all, corruption. Second of all, uh, the fact that they get all their ad revenue from advertisers. Advertisers are people who are companies, people who are selling products in most cases, products or services. Many of these pro products or services have negative consequences, and they're not super keen on giving money to people who are going to go around pointing out that there's something wrong with their business model. So we've, we've created a problem of incentive here, so we can't really trust the media. Our education system is also incomplete in many cases, and, and is simply not possible to equip people fully in all areas. Uh, something that's been less of an issue, in my opinion, in Canada, but has been a very serious problem in the U.S., is also political meddling in the education system, where politicians are trying to change textbooks to say that we should teach the controversy about whether or not we were poofed by magic into existence, or whether or not science has actually demonstrated that we did, in fact, share a common ancestor with apes. Um, uh, another example uh, is really uh, very important to science is counterintuitive principles. So there's a lot of things in science that are just the opposite of what it seems logical. And it just turns out science is cool. Reality is neat. A lot of the time things aren't the way they seem. Uh, so I, we're, uh, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with this, but it also means we're, I'm running over. So I'll try and uh, keep moving here pretty quickly. So uh, the problem of active decision, of course, this comes from uh, government propaganda. This comes from uh, marketing. So people not uh, actively trying to deceive you to take over the world, but people that are just trying to sell you stuff, right? Eco-friendly cleaning products, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, fat-free yogurt. Uh, all of these claims are highly dubious and few people, at, at least when it comes to products, I think the majority of the population does understand that they can't really believe most of what's in marketing, but that without any way to discern what is actually true, what, uh, how are they left to do? How can we have a democracy where even if they know they're being lied to, if they don't know what the real answer is, what can they do about it? Uh, and the other thing is popular myths. And, and, and a very a very easy uh, example of this is is memes that are randomly like quotes from people that you know never said stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but people love to believe things that they already agree with. Uh, so keeping moving, of course, uh, the next one would be the problem of voting. Um, uh, there's two issues here I want to highlight. One of them is voting systems. Uh, we've been encouraged by some listeners to come back to this. Uh, we do have a, I think, a very antiquated and poor voting system. I would like to see a uh, some form of uh, proportional representation uh, implemented. But of course, this doesn't get us out of the problem that if people don't know what they're talking about, getting a more fair, fair way of asking them what they would like doesn't really solve that problem. So fixing the voting system doesn't really fix our democracy. The other thing that, uh, that I think is actually more important, and, and I wish I could spend some more time on it again, 
we'll probably come back to any of this if people are interested, is what do we vote about? We vote for leaders, not ideas a lot of the time, right? So do I like Trudeau or do I like Mulcair? Do I like Harper? As opposed to what should we do with the country? What are actually the best ideas for the uh, best ideas and best policy? Um, this tribalistic idea around parties about I'm a conservative. Well, you say you are. Um, but I think, uh, I, in my personal opinion, I'm sorry if I offend anyone here, I think anyone that, that personally identifies with a, mindlessly with a political party is just being an idiot um, because they change the values all the time. They tell you what you want to hear because their number one job is not leading the country or being effective. They have no representation between their actual be- uh, benefit or uh, harm to the economy or our society, way of life other than did they get elected again. This creates a system of incentive for them to deceive you into thinking that they've done a good job or that they do have the best ideas rather than any measure in any way that correlates to any actual societal benefit. The last thing, uh, really quickly here, and then we'll go to break and I'll come back for comment uh, from our, our co-host. And again, please, if you have any thoughts about any of this, do email us. I would love to discuss this further. This is actually one of my favorite topics among many, uh, is the scale problem. And this is one that I've actually mentioned repeatedly, and Stefan will be uh, feel a bit broken recordy for me about this one. Uh, but the scale problem applies to uh, very, many, very many years ago, there was a, a quite a, a kerfuffle, I remember, when I was in school about the issue of globalization. There was a lot of anti-globalization stuff. Uh, Sabina may even uh, remember some of this as well, although it was a really a big thing when I was in high school. Um, and the issue here, I don't think, I mean, we, we live in a world where technology has shrunk the world uh, incredibly rapidly and to an incredibly small size. So the idea that we could prevent uh globalization, quote unquote, is just ludicrous. And I think that that was a looting battle from day one. And, and, and quite frankly, I thought so the minute I heard it when I was in grade nine. Um, the issue here is not whether or not we have globalized things. We have globalized impact. We operate as a, in many ways as a single planet now through social media and the ability to, to send messages and communicate uh, through whether we're talking about uh, uh, trade uh, or government interactions or war. We live on a globalized planet. We have to think about it as one unit. So the issue with the scale problem is not the fact that we shouldn't be operating at this level because I actually believe that we should. The problem is, is that the only people who are actually effectively uh, internationalized, if you will, globalized, are in fact private multinational corporations with no specific allegiances to any government. So many American quote-unquote companies like to call themselves American, but they have no allegiance to Americans and most of their money is hidden in offshore bank accounts anyway. Or Delaware. These are people who, uh, or Delaware, these, these are people who simply have a game, and this has been the longest running game in town for, for at least 50 years, has been, I'm going to play one country's regulations off another, and if you guys want to try and impose any sort of uh, thing to protect your workers, to protect your local environment, fine, I'm going to take all of my jobs, I'm going to take all of this GDP revenue that I'm giving you and you should be grateful for, and I'm going to take it to someone who is willing to live limit their standards and is willing to reduce environmental protections. So the problem here is the scale problem is that we have uh, operators and rules with no uh, uh, no legal, uh, moral, or even onus of any kind to operate in any way in a socially con- uh, conducive way, which of just by simple definition uh, at this point have de facto authority over the governments that we've elected to attempt to uh, uh, to protect us from these things. And the very last thing I'll say was uh, on this, and then we'll go to break and we'll come back and discuss is that this is not this is even before we start thinking about things like the TPP which essentially someone sent around a meme on Facebook and I generally hate Facebook but I did really enjoy this which was the TPP explained and it said corporations want a law to prevent you from making laws against them 
And that's basically what we've got here. Uh, and this is before any of this. We've had this problem. This, uh, these uh, rules, like the TPP, will put this problem on steroids and will permanently put people who, by law, have a requirement and their only requirement is to maximize profit for shareholders with no recourse in any way, either implied or in law, to protect the well-being of anyone on this planet outside of their shareholders, which generally aren't super worried about living in poverty. So I'm going to end it there. I could easily do a 30-minute talk on each of these topics. That's my quick overview. We're going to take a quick music break so that we can digest that, and we'll come back for comment. I see some people starting to parse their lips already, so hopefully there's a few things to say about that. Um, But that's it. That's my rant. Um, So, Ed, please uh, serenade us again, and we'll be back in a minute to discuss. You're listening to The Green Majority. Ed, what do you got for us? All right. We are back here on The Green Majority into the final few minutes, and I'm actually, because I just spent a whole bunch of time talking really fast, I'm going to throw right to Stefan for comment. So any thoughts about my brief Limits of Democracy? Uh, I think you've talked yourself into a corner. Um, uh, and and I imagine you're, you'll have some in in in, a, in in a in your third episode you'll you'll bring this out. But uh, there's there's if, if for for a true democracy to work, you must you obviously must have the people feel like they're connected. Of course, that's the that's the number one that's the number one to get people involved. Like, and that's arguably the 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 few times that we've had truly successful sort of uh, progressive uprising, uh, not uprising, progressive movements have been when people feel like the government actually represents them, and, and to some extent, the progressive movements rely on trust in government. Uh, for a progressive movement to to not have a level of trust in government uh, would uh, you know the then looks like anarchy to some extent. Uh, and not, that's not anarchy as in like anarchy, that's like anarchists who think that you should have like no government and they run it in a whole different way and that's a whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and just for clarity, and I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think you misunderstood this, but just for clarity of the audience, but the point of my presentation today was not to say, and therefore we should do something other than democracy. Right. It was just, we're gonna, we need to have an honest discussion about where some of the limits of what it is. For sure, yeah. Uh, and But what I was going to say was that what's interesting about the, the way you've run it is that we, we, that when you look at what, where where the govern where the govern or governors or people who are put in charge uh, are most connected with people on local scales are, are, are local or local elections you know uh, it's where you, you know, most way way more people know their know their councillor than know their than the, know their MPP and probably way more people know their MPP than they know their their MP <coughs> sorry for for people who are not Canadian who have listened to this uh, you know I think councillor city MPP is pro- provincial and then MP is is, is federal uh, and each, so each time you're sort of in charge of more space. Uh, you, you're less and less connected to the people on the ground, uh, and and so for you know for example, uh, you know Adam Vaughn is currently my MP, uh, but uh, but he's but he spends most of his time in Ottawa because he, that's where they do all the that's where they do the things. So it's much harder to get a meeting with him than it say would be Joe Cressy, who's my MPP or who's my counselor. Uh, and so <laughs> when you're asking, so inherently uh, when you ask to sort of scale up, scale up, scale up, uh, the 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 points in which you can uh, in which you can um, corrupt not actually corrupt but but the, the 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 more opportunities for say lobbyists to sort of inject their own power into into the into the system uh, is higher and higher because that's what they're seeing more and more and more of uh, especially those, look, those are the people they see every day are exactly. lobbyists not citizens exactly uh, and so and so you get sort of a, a more imperfect democracy that the further away from the people you get. Uh, and and you know and, and especially you see it even more so in the states with 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 the amount of which of time uh, um, congressmen spend fundraising is out of this world. Uh, there's a great piece I think it was John Oliver about it. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, mm-hmm. of, of like four hours a day going to fundraising out of an eight hour day. So that's that's ludicrous. 
um, and, and speaks to sort of like how are you really if, if, that, if that's how much you're trying to get money then that's those are the people your the constituents are the people who are going to give you money not the people who actually might might employ you or, or might, might elect you um, and so but what, what you've sort of implied I think what you're leading towards is sort of idea of, of a need for some sort of form of global government uh, or at least if you want to have some sort of global regulation uh, you would need some sort of uh, thing to match the, the global power of these multinationals I, I wouldn't necessarily even go that far I'm just saying that we have a power disconnect and we need to address it the form is, that that address takes is is open at this time right which is fair uh and i'm not, I'm not saying you, but but like, it leads that direction you know you, if you need some sort of regulation you need someone to run that regulation and someone to run that regulation has to have some sort of power uh and needs to get their power f- be given to them from somewhere uh and so and so for but if just to imagine the sort of slightly slowly scaling up of the already disconnect you experience from mpp to mp to try to understand just how disconnected can you imagine if just you know look at the un what percentage of canadians so what 40 ish percent of canadians elected trudeau uh that means 60 percent of canadians uh are, are are not being heard when when trudeau goes to the un and has and has a conversation uh and imagine that imagine that globally the connect the disconnect you have between the disconnect you have between and that, that would still be a 195 person caucus an uh, interesting fast fact is that uh, most likely uh, uh uh hillary clinton and donald trump are going to be the two nominees right those two candidates have in uh, order trump and then clinton the two highest disfavorable rates in american history right Exactly. That's a shocking fact. Yeah, and, and, and it speaks. Sorry. Uh, so, like, so it speaks to the the, uh, the, the just to, just to highlight that sort of the, the, the difficulty that you that in 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 creating a system that sort of works better or creating a system that sort of it works in different in different way. And specifically, I think personally, I'm more on the let's inform the public as much as possible, and then and then how do you make organizations that represent these people more effective? Um, uh, because there's this there's this inherent problem, and you're you know looking at this problem in a way. But I'm gonna throw to Sabina. Um, I just wanted to talk about you know the limits of democracy, kind of in the way that I think about it, in the way that I understand, and I think about it when you talk about democracy or capitalism or communism. I would I think about it kind of academic, like so you have theoretical which is democracy on paper, communism on paper, and how beautifully it all works out. Oh, why can't we just have everybody come on in, make a vote, everybody just knows everything about everything, and then you have experimental where, you know, you put some things together, you see if it works out, that theoretical paper somehow ends up in the garbage, no one ever talks about it anymore. And I think... I think the big problem, I think it comes back to scale and information. And when we're talking about globalization and uh, all about these international companies, I think the complexity of globalization is so immense. And us as people, we sometimes feel like, okay, maybe I don't have a lot of power. So we like to put blame on organizations, on the UN, on NGOs, on these large uh, multinational corporations. And we don't necessarily realize that we as people make up those multinational comp- uh, corporations. Like we as people work in whatever company at Walmart and uh, we work at McDonald's and we do all of these things and we don't recognize that we do have the power to change them yet there's nothing perfect like there's nothing perfect because we don't in in theory um we don't take in human behavior we don't take in human desire we don't take in human desire for power or for love or for whatever so theory in theory everything works out because it's kind of like the economic system of the the free market system everything works out because you don't take in all of the different complexities and the different um 
ideas that is to be human, whereas in experimental, you have to just kind of throw a bunch of things together and see what happens. And if it works out, great. If it doesn't, you have to try something else. And I think that's... Walmart's actually a really good example of that because the number one product, the number one area of uh, things that Walmart sells is food products. And more the majority of sales of their food products are paid for with food stamps. So there's actually a billion, billion, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar subsidy of Walmart, one of the richest corporations on the planet with some of the richest family on the planet, which is directly being subsidized by the government, people who need food stamps because of Walmart. Mm-hmm. Well, That's a perfect example of some of the issues that we're talking about. Well, and not only that, when you, like, you're also looking at the level of control uh, that, uh, that different people have um, over um, – over Walmart, like 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 like, you don't get to decide whether or not you get to actually uh, whether or not you actually get to con- you buy things from Walmart. Like you don't you don't get to decide. Most of these people who are working these scenarios, you you, you get a, a, a basically you're in a world where everyone is trying to like. What's funny about this is I keep thinking about this. Come, come back to this. I, mean, I a little bit feel like I'm living I'm I'm living my life the fir- the first time, and I'm like, oh, next time I'm gonna I'm gonna really nail this. I figured this out for the next time. I and and like, and obviously that's not how the world works. Uh, but I think so often that's you get to a point later on, and you're looking back, and that's what really ends up uh, as, as casting back. And so when we're looking at sort of things like. You know, like the, if you work at you know you work at McDonald's and you're like, oh man, I could I could do something else. You probably you're when you start working at McDonald's, you're just trying to find a job, right? Like you you have a hierarchy of needs, and if there's ever a problem with uh with with this sort of democracy, whole idea of democracy, it's that the hierarchy of needs takes a while to get to idealistic success. Uh, there's a lot of other needs you got to work your way through before you get there, uh, and you know and, and and the examples are, are rampant all over, the, are all over the world of the different ways that we're sort of – that these are people fighting for these other things. And honestly, if you just give them stability and make sure that – and a roof for their heads, that's what actually people want first and foremost before all of these other things. Uh, and so if you want to talk about sort of the uh, – yeah, we have a minute, so I'm going to throw it to Deirdre. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that I just wanted to bring in that the Ontario government is planning to bring in a test of – of annual income, uh, of minimum annual annual income, and we'll see what happens with that. Because once once those needs are settled, then maybe we can move move forward as a society. Great tease, and I'm actually going to be coming back to that in a future one. So thank you. We are in fact out of time, but we're going to be back with uh, 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 Sabina as well in the bonus show in a minute. For now, thank you so much for listening to the Green Majority. Any comments about this? Please email it to us greenmajority.ca along with all the show notes. But that's all the time we have for the live show. See everybody next week. That was our regular show this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my uh, slight monologue on democracy. If you're interested in hearing more, please email us and let us know. But we now have a further discussion hosted by two of our new uh, co-hosts, Sabina, who you've been hearing for a while, and a new volunteer as well, uh, which actually joined us a while ago and then immediately had to go overseas, so is back as well. Deirdre, I do and hope you'd enjoy our bonus show with our two new volunteers. If you can and willing and are able, you can, of course, help uh, support the show at patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Green Majority. Other than that, please enjoy the bonus show, and we'll talk to you all again real soon. Hi, and welcome to the Green Majority Majority After Show podcast. My name is Sabina, and I'm here with Deirdre, and we'll be your hosts today. We're also here with Stefan and Darren. And, uh, and uh, today I'm going to be talking about 
And Ed. Oh, Ed, Ed, sorry. Ed is also there. He's in the other room. <laughs> he's over there in the other room. Usually he's the he's the tech, so I don't. Uh, I don't oh, think about techs it. are I'm people. I'm so hurt right now. <laughs> no, he's definitely very, very, very valuable. Like that's not something that I will take away from him. I want to get a shirt that says "Text for people too." <laughs> oh no, I definitely think that they're people. Like I said, I wanted to be the female Go Go Gadgets so if I could somehow. Anyways, um, today today we're going to be talking about the potential negative effect of energy-efficient technologies. And I found this really, really interested, uh, interesting. It was posted in Science Daily, and also it's from a, an issue, so a special issue report in Yale's Journal of Industrial Ecology. So I'll kind of give you a little bit of a spiel about it right now. So global leaders signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement at the UN headquarters around last week promising to implement a wide range of strategies for climate change mitigation. And at the top of this list is curbing greenhouse gas emissions through carbon sequestration or energy-efficient technologies. Uh, the UN Secretary General said that we must intensify efforts to decarbonize our economies and we must support developing countries in making this transition. However, the environmental impacts in terms of a cost-benefit analysis are not fully understood when it comes to new methods of renewable energy and energy-efficient technologies. So a special report issue... Uh, so a special issue report in Yale's Journal of Industrial Ecology aims to advance the life cycle analysis, understanding and natural resource implementation of new implications of new technologies specializing in energy efficiency. So this report was written in, in collaboration with the United Nations Environmental Program in order to serve as an appendix for any new um, scientific advancement on life cycle assessments for energy efficiency technologies. So basically what it's saying that while it's crucial to meet climate change targets, scientists and researchers must also bear in mind the environmental implications of the technologies being built. Um, most recently I was take, I ha I'm taking classes on environmental science and we're looking at how solar panels are built and uh, wind turbines and in these, in these, um, in the panels and in the wind turbines, there exists all of these like very rare metals that have to be extracted from China. So we have to continue um, mining like these rare metals and uh, doing these destructive practices even to get our clean technology. So what, what they're trying to do is trying to create a life cycle assessment for what are the costs and benefits of doing renewable energies or energy efficient technologies versus, you know, coal, uh, like burning coal and burning fossil fuels. And what's also interesting is that the interaction between supplying and demand is very crucial when we want to supply the renewable energies to developing countries that have committed um, to the shift towards a low carbon future. And um, yeah, so the life cycle assessment of these technologies definitely has to be studied and understood if we want to increase the role of renewables in the global energy mix. And what I find really interesting at this is that it's also like the limits of technology, if we must, you know, um, we create we create these technologies that are hopefully for the better. And then we don't really know their implications until they happen. So environmental like so we have to really take in the environmental and the to toxicological effects of all of the different technologies that we create so that we know that we're not going to destroy the environment even worse than before we started to use this technology. Mm. Yeah. Um, I have two issues with this this energy efficient technology um, and its its claim for the future because I think decision makers right now at the beginning of any large movement they have a tendency to make big blanket statements that sound really good but don't really mean anything um, and energy efficient technologies. 
is kind of one of those like we know it, it's pretty it's pretty obvious what it is if you look at the words but how like do we have an idea of what they're actually talking about when they're talking about energy efficient technologies because you can have energy efficient technologies that use energy efficiently but are inherently bad for the planet um so i think i think they really need to start going into more detail about what kind of technologies they're talking about what they're going to be used for um yeah oh and my second point is um that i actually yeah have been super interested in um that area and um for example palm oil um palm the palm plant is one of the most efficient oil plants in the world in that it produces more oil per hectare than any other oil by far by 2 to 5 times i'd say um so and it produces two types of oil so in theory again we're talking about theory versus experimental it is probably the best oil to be producing on an industrial scale on in the planet if it is managed properly but the problem becomes the management of that system so i think we have a tendency to throughout humanity we have a tendency to put blinkers on um and zone in on one particular problem ignoring the rest of of the things that we should be looking at about the rest of the factors that we should be looking at like invasive species if we want to get rid of like say a frog we'll send snakes in and then they'll destroy the ecosystem and then we won't learn and then we'll send wolves in to call deer and that destroys that ecosystem and we still haven't learned and that i mean i I think we should look back at history for a second and thank you for referencing one of my favorite uh, Simpsons episodes. I was going to say yeah. And then there are tigers roaming Springfield. <laughs> I I also wanted to mention I really really like uh, that you said management specifically I, I watched this really amazing TED Talk the other day and it's um it's from the dean of Rotman School of Management and she what she was saying is that all of these problems that we're experiencing right now is not only a scientific problem and it's not only a climate change problem or, you know, human rights issue. It's also management issues. And if we keep teaching our MBAs and all of these people that are going to be the next business leaders of the world soon, if we keep teaching them bottom line and just the profit is what's important, then our management systems will always be what is the most efficient way to get there. And the most efficient way is not always the best way and it's not always the most sustainable way. So we have to not only look at the scientific aspect, the political aspect and the human rights aspect, but we also have to look at how can we manage these systems in a holistic way in which we can further move on sustainably and you know it, it comes back to you know are we going to treat the symptoms or are we going to treat the core issue of the problem like well and I, I think that's the that's the thing that what's funny about this is it, it ties really into something that i've thought about a bunch and i had this conversation with kevin farmer maybe a year and a half ago um which is that you can have a carbon zero world that isn't sustainable. Yes, exactly. Uh, you can do that, you, you, and, and that's very possible. <laughs> uh, and I, I, as a pragmatist, I honestly think that's necessary. Uh, I really don't think we have we don't have enough time uh, to uh, to to look for the perfect solution. Uh, we need to get to carbon zero now, mm -hmm. uh, and if that means still other unsustainable practices. 
okay because right now we don't have that kind of timeline. Uh, we're just not, you know, it's just not not the case. And there's definitely value, I think, in understanding and and, and keep in mind how then to improve later. Because again, if you're if you're you know if your carbon zero uh, solution still falls on single practices, it will eventually collapse, yeah. which is still obviously a thing. Uh, but it's it's as fast. It's, it's uh, people people act as if the word sustainability means carbon zero and vice versa and that's just not the case mm. and and because i study sustainability i can tell you that sustainability literally means every single thing on this planet we have tried to define sustainability so many times but an, an interesting example is that i actually wrote like a 20-page paper on emerging carbon sequestration technologies and net zero carbon technologies. And one of the things, for example, if you're talking about carbon farming, where you use agriculture in order to, you know, create a net carbon, net zero carbon environment, that uses a lot of water, a lot of water that could have been used for something else. And uh, there was this really great paper um, in, in an Australian journal where it was saying, well, you know, we're really dire for water here. And if you're going to use carbon farming, in this land that really just needs the water more than it needs to have a net zero carbon effect, then this is not a sustainable practice and we can't really go forward with it. So this is why, I mean, it's really about finding the best solution moving forward rather than, you know, the perfect sustainable solution. And that was something I remember coming across my desk a couple of years ago that that surprised me. It surprised me. It was something I hadn't thought of at the time, which was, Yes, climate change is going to be the the uh, trigger for the thing that's going to cause us the most damage. But what are we actually going to experience first is going to be a lack of water. Mm -hmm. And and there were some several uh, reputable magazines that had water wars question mark as their as their title. And it's because, yeah, the actual thing that's actually going to kill people immediately is going to be uh, water in two directions. Too much salt water is in rising sea levels and too little fresh water as in people can't feed crops and will will uh, either starve or or uh, what happens when you run out of water? You die. I'm blank. Dehydrate. You die of dehydration. Yeah. Yes, that, there's a better word for it, but I'm blanking on it. But yeah, that, that's and uh, I think that's a very good example Unless of what you're saying. Unless the bacteria gets to us first. <laughs> Unless the Zika gets us first. Yeah. 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 As um, soon as as soon as I heard about the sexually transmitted part, I started getting really worried. <laughs> um, uh oh. Yeah. Exactly. This is our moms listen to this yeah, show. Seriously. Uh, the, um, we exist because our parents had sex. <laughs> la la la. I it's can't. Not hear true. You. Not me. Yeah. <laughs> Here, here for test tube, baby. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but I, to, to get on the, to, the one little bit about uh, about energy efficient stuff and stuff like that, I think it comes, speaks to some extent to this. I've had a bunch of conversations about about with, with people regarding the CSR and corporate 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 and social responsibility uh, and sustainability departments in corporations, uh, and how often that ends up being. Uh, and it, what's interesting about that is that it speaks to both the massive opportunity that does exist right now uh, within these sort of things to, to that because just a little bit better is so because of how, how wide ranging these controls has is so much better. Uh, like, you know, a small a small action by one of these multinationals has such a far ranging reach on sustainability measures that you actually can do a ton with a very small thing. But what you're only ever doing there again is picking the easiest fruit. Uh, and so you're and so you're solving this. You're 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 getting massive gains, but those gains have a ceiling, and 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 and, and the ceiling is 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 well before zero carbon. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 well it's it's still within a, 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 a an issue. So it's interesting that 
you know, while we're still looking at the sort of while these these are the, the things that what's I think the difficulty we have right now is that, is that the moves we have now that create the biggest change uh, right now are not the moves that will eventually solve the problem. And so we have this weird dichotomy of if I want to reduce the most carbon tomorrow, what can I do? It's not the same answer of if I want to get to zero carbon eventually, what's my answer? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's this d- problem of these two these two differentiating goals uh, that are causing this entire, I guess, breakdown in conversation. And I really think it's it's kind of an approach to a problem. And if you really think about it in a mathematical way, some people will take a problem and they will logically approach it in, you know, a simplistic way. Whereas this problem is so large that it cannot be logically approached. Like, okay, if we want to, you know, be net zero carbon tomorrow, then we have this. Or if we want to be net zero carbon in the future, then we have to do this. The approach has to take a lot of different minds to work on the same issue together and like i said earlier not treating the symptoms not treating biodiversity loss or you know um zika virus or coral bleaching it's you know treating the fact that climate change exists and because of climate change we are going to have a water shortage a food shortage you know climate refugees blah blah blah, everything that we've mentioned in this show a hundred thousand times and I think the main thing is is that people have to think about the problem in a different way than they've solved problems before. And then that's like it's really innovation, whether it be in management, whether it be in technology, whether it be in science, it doesn't matter. You have to just think about the problem differently because it's a completely different problem. It's a new problem and we have to think about a new solution. Well, and, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think we're I'm just gonna say I, I think we're in a really great age for design right now and there's no reason why we can't come up with a plan to make something sustainable work even if it takes a few years to do it i think we need to make that commitment even if it takes just a little bit of time Hmm. and the comment i wanted to throw in was just the idea like the the idea of why i wanted to do this series is very much about that is that you know, I think one of the most fundamental parts of why this, why we haven't been able to constructively deal with this problem, is that because um, these the types of problems we're experiencing are emergent properties of the type of system that we have, and so a lot of the time when I bring up things, even I had even an argument with my own brother who will agree with me on most of these topics. Uh, where I started talking about systemic change and he got really frustrated really quickly and in, in, in the sort of like eye rolling sort of sense and be like, oh yeah, okay, why don't we just implement communism? Like a lot, and a lot of people have that reaction of like, as soon as you talking and start talking about fundamental values, they're like, that's too hard. It's off the table. But okay, but until we understand that these are the ty- the, we can only ever have these types of results when we have a system that's designed them as outputs, tweaking the end product will never work. We, you cannot solve these problems by tweaking the current system we have when the problems we're experiencing are a direct consequence of the system that we have. It, it is simply not possible. You're going around in circles. And so it's it, rather than say, well, we might want to also have this conversation. It's yeah. my point is that we cannot, th- there is no solution to this problem without systemic change. Mm-hmm. So e- either we're talking about systemic change or we're abandoning hope. Mm-hmm. Those are, in my opinion, and people are free to disagree, but that's my opinion is unless we're talking about systemic change, we're not talking at all. I think where the problem comes, because I kind of sometimes agree with your brother when people start talking to me about systemic change. I get frustrated because I think, how are we going to get there? Like, I'm one of those people that's like, please, Lord, give me the answer. Because for me, systemic change makes perfect sense, again, theoretically. And then we then we have all of these issues 
So, I mean, then it's kind of like, what kind of approach are you going to take? Are you going to take that top down? The the prime minister tells you what to do. Everybody follows communism approach or the bottom up, you know, the people for the people by the people democracy approach or both. I mean, really, what's the best way? And I think everybody wants systemic change. And I think that's really what the goal is. But the frustration of the people comes where it's like. Tell me how. Tell me how, and let's try to do it. But well, like we were weeks. talking, Stefan, I, I know I'm, I'm waiting for that. I'm waiting for the So What Smart Guy no. episode. No. So What Smart Guy episode is going to be a lot of fun, and hopefully we'll actually spend the majority of that episode actually talking about that, because I, th- I, I think it will be a very fun discussion. Uh, uh, Ed, Ed wants to jump in. in. Yeah. yeah. Um, so with <laughs> the systemic change that you guys are talking about, to me uh, personally, I don't you know obviously know as much about these type of things, but when I hear systemic change, I think a big step. I think like you know revolution, you know anarchy, you know, <laughs> yeah. crazy things happening. And so like for for yeah the average person to me it sounds like how like what how can we break it up into like little things to get to whatever the you know end goal is rather than that kind of big step where we you know have to topple the government and have these big conspiracies or you know something something crazy happening yeah. and and i think that and i and i have to, I, 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 this is uh, thank you for bringing that example but i'm going i'm going to explain why that's a faulty way to think of it mm-hmm. no through no fault of your own because that's the most common when someone says systemic change that's what they think yeah. um and again i'm not going to get into it now but that's actually not what people like me who are proposing systemic change are talking about. Um, and the difference matters. But yes, that approach doesn't work. And that's not what we're suggesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but stay tuned for that. Well, but a lot of them, people are suggesting that. Like, like it's not yeah. wrong. Like, yeah. a so, yeah, vast some, percentage some people of people are suggesting. Like, but, like, like, there's not, let's be real here. That's, that, that is a, that is a, a reasonable percentage of people who are like, I think, I think the people the who yell that don't actually <laughs> have any ideas. They're just yelling, we need this fundamental change, but they don't actually know what that change is. There's a number of folks who have actually done quite a bit of thinking on what that change could be. And all of those people have a much more mature, I would say, understanding of the reality of the, the fact that you don't, you know, and, and the, the example, a perfect example, actually, uh, I did a, uh, one of my two, uh, my, uh, I had two majors, a double major and a minor at U of T. One of the majors was environmental policy. The other one was urban studies with a minor in GIS. And the urban studies one, one of the things that we talked about, because it was sort of a split class between um, municipal politics, like how you actually go about uh, administering a city. And the other one was like, how do you plan a city? And one of the f- first day, the first thing that was said was um, writing stuff out for your ideal city uh, ideal city is a nice thought exercise, but it's effectively useless because we, do, we run out of space. There is nowhere where we can, we effectively get to build a new city from scratch. So if you don't have an idea that starts with what you've got and plans from how you get from that to where you want to go, then you're wasting everybody's time. Uh, and I and I think that is where a lot of people go wrong on that is they don't they they try and come up with some sort of ideal but they have no concept of acknowledging where we are or actually any plan from how to go from what we have to what we want. Uh, my plan does include that, All but right. many uh, people don't. Right. Yes. We'll, we'll we'll get to and get that to, is a legitimate criticism, right? And we'll get to your plan and say and I'm 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 going to warn you right now. There's about a ninety nine percent nine percent chance I will disagree with your. your <laughs> I solution. hope you do. Um, I, but I think I think the other thing about this often is that the people who are so consistently uh, claiming uh, are going for system change conversation will never actually will never actually accept 
will will believe the things that actually work to change the system. I think the things that like I think what we see is that system change is a slow and and, sm- and, and slow process of uh, of of things that every single time you do something yes. will be decried as not enough, and you get seventeen things that are not enough that may finally be enough, and that's what ends up sort of happening. So like for example, like if I had to guess how we might theoretically get to a carbon uh, a carbon reasonable economy uh, in the next say thirty years in Canada. It would be we get proportional representation, which somehow leads to us getting a decent price on carbon, which somehow leads us to uh, – which, which, which helps propel the already existing p- platform economy into being more circular. Uh, and there's a relatively good number of, uh, of bills that are passed in the EU to, to, to help with circular economy. I think those four things combined could theoretically, with a strong enough actual push from government, because as you can see what happened in the 70s was the government decided that buying things was all that matters and convinced you to buy stuff all the time. Uh, we can do the opposite of that with the same sort of messaging. Uh, and so I think that with a strong enough push on those uh, on similar for those four type things, plus a a, a decent attempt at uh, actually messaging the importance of this, um, I, I, like I, it's that's how we get there. We don't get there by by being like, all right, we're doing this thing and it will it and it will change. It's a bunch of things that are not good enough. All right, I think we're at risk of going over time. Sabina would, and Deirdre, would you like to wrap us up? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to finish up with what, what what Stefan was saying. And we always have to look at history and how far that we've already come. I mean, is if we if we look at even where we, where we were in the 1960s, so many more people have gained rights, or at least like on paper have gained rights since the 1960s. And Darren, you were talking about uh, the LGBT community and uh, even even the issues that are happening right now in the States, just being aware of these issues is already a step forward. Just having people say, yeah, we, we need to talk about bathroom um, bathrooms and the trans community, that is already a step forward in systemic change. I mean, this would have never happened 30 years ago, ever. So I think, you know, it's it's kind of great that it's already happening and hopefully will continue to happen. And, uh, you know, with that, that's that's kind of all I have to say about that. Deirdre, you want to close us? <laughs> nice Forrest Gump quote, too, by the way. <laughs> Oh, I just I just want to say subsidies. I think we should talk about subsidies um, because I think that contributes to um, your what Darren was talking about, about active deception uh, and also an informed public and maybe possibly ties everything together from today. Future episodes. Woo. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And thank you so much for uh, Sabina and Deirdre for leading us in our uh, bonus show. Uh, another long one today, but we keep having tons of good stuff to talk about. So hopefully people made it this far in the program. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you all real soon. Mm-hmm.